Okay, tonight I'd like to start talking about ethics. And in a way, really pick up some of what I uh, was speaking about in the Sila and Soul series. I think it's nine, nine or ten parts there. So some of what was uh, gone into explored there, I'd like to elaborate certain elements of that, pieces of that, um, and extend uh, what we said there. So, uh, these talks on ethics uh, are very much based on those Sila and Soul talks. Uh, they're presuming them, and they, as I said, elaborate on certain strands there and extend it, and I hope take it just a little bit further at least. Um, ethics, as I said, is one of those subjects that's infinite that I don't think we should ever finally arrive at at uh, a, a full stop and answer where we're completely satisfied. Um, so whatever I say in these talks is really just a snapshot of this time in my own studies and reflections regarding ethics, and particularly regarding their uh, connection with soul-making, dharma and practice. Uh, so it's just a snapshot now um, of what could be, and what should be, I think, a never-ending exploration. I'm doing it now partly because I'm concerned there won't be another chance. Um, I hope, obviously I hope there will, but uh, I hope if not or even if there is for me, that others will explore this whole area and, and these themes further, uh, more deeply, more widely than I have done, and develop the soul-making dharma, and uh, in, in lots of ways, but also in, in relation to ethics, and the ethical aspects of directions within soul-making dharma, and uh, that others would also study other ethical philosophies, and um, perhaps there can be fruitful dialogue uh, in, in the wider sense at some point. So, uh, pretty much everything I say here rests on an understanding and a digestion of what I said in Sila and Soul, what was said in Sila and Soul elaborates and extends that, I won't repeat the explanations and the vocabulary that I introduced uh, in those talks in Sina and Sol, uh, uh, very, very minimally. Um, so I'm assuming that you're up to speed with that. And why now? Yeah, well, because it seems obvious to me that um, there's an urgent need in our world uh, at present, right now, at this time, uh, to rethink and to reformulate ethics, um, to put it on a firmer foundation, foundations, to make it more coherent, to make it more central to our lives, and also to make it something, uh, to allow it to be something beautiful, something attractive this whole domain, this whole area of exploration. There's a, um urgent, urgent need for that. And, yeah, I might say, you know, valuable and important as 
offering mindfulness to the world and to different demographics in society and the wider world, valuable and important as that is, of course, I, I would say an even more pressing need, an even more urgent and more basic need, is uh, to open up the open up and revivify the whole exploration of ethics and offer something there uh, in terms of education, formulation, as I said, practice. So that strikes me as a very urgent need. It also strikes me after the Sila and Soul talks that um, I was perhaps a little too restrained there, a little too modest, if that's the right word, um, with respect to what I what I think, what I now think, soul making dharma might actually offer in, in to the area of ethics. So sometimes I think I said there, people get very excited about soul making dharma, and I almost find myself taking the other pole of like, well, you know, let's see, it's not for everyone, and man, you know, it's great that it that you're excited, and and I tend to take the pole of the more sort of unenthusiastic. Uh, partner there but perhaps in retrospect I was as I said a little too restrained too modest in uh, regarding what soul making down might might offer and might inject into uh, the ethical the discourse about ethics and how it might open it out and how it might um, what it might give it and what questions it might bring to bear as well um, so in many ways, uh, this talk is a kind of, um, as I'll explain, it's, it's a questioning about what, what we need in ethical systems, but it's also a, a kind of proffering or putting forward or advocating of soul-making dharma as um, possibly a really, a really potent and viable uh, injection into the way we think about and relate to ethics and injection into the wider society not just soul-making dharma practitioners so it's a little more positive uh, as a, 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 a stance perhaps at least I'm hoping um, a little less restrained, a little less modest it'll probably be still quite restrained and modest anyway so, uh, one of the things I think I touched on in the Sina and Soul Talks was the very real danger, I think, that ethics, uh, the whole area of ethics, slides, or has already slid, um, to really become a question of law and legality. So ethics as an area of philosophy kind of has slid or is in the process of sliding to law. And laws, uh, the debate, rather the debate about ethics has slid to almost a debate about laws uh, for the most part. Law ensuring as best as possible, whatever that might mean, that everyone's right to pursue what they want to pursue is protected as long as it does not infringe on others' similar rights to pursue what they want to pursue in society. 
So that the whole the whole debate and question, the whole way we see ethics, kind of slides to a question of what laws do we need to put in place, or how, what behaviour do we need to ensure that, uh, that will in turn ensure that as best as possible, um, everyone's right to um, go after and do what they want to go after and do is protected, as long as or to the degree that it doesn't infringe on other similar, similar other people's similar uh, rights to uh, pursue what they want to pursue. So that's the kind of ideal uh, that of this kind of uh, thinking, uh, this kind of level of thinking about ethics where it's really slid to a level of thinking about law, legality and rights. And of course this makes sense and it's a good idea and historically it came, uh, you know, I think Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes was one of the people behind it at the time of the English Civil Wars, utter brutality and chaos and violence and bloodshed. And so thinking about ethics in this way and, uh, you know, offering that as a kind of idea was, you know, a really good idea and makes sense at a certain level. But um, uh, one of the things I want to point out is that it's a limited way of thinking about ethics and it will be limiting. Not to mention, of course, the fact that it's not very well implemented in our societies. You know, the... Uh, rights of the rich to pursue what they want to pursue seem uh, protected often above the rights of the poor to pursue uh, what they want to pursue, even if they're just the rights to uh, basic uh, in basic uh, human needs, etc. Or, or, you know, the rights of one uh, ethnic group over another. So it's not very well implemented, um, both in terms of uh, economic status and other, you know, race and other social social status things. But but just as important as that, it 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 has no basis, and this is what I want part a big part of what I want to want to go into. There's no basis on underlying that whole ideology there's not a sufficient basis to decide between someone claiming this is my right to pursue this and someone saying oh but that infringes on my right to do that um, the theory uh, philosophical theory the ethical theory just stops at this kind of uh, unidimensional flat level of rights and law and has no uh, deeper uh, structure or ideation to uh, on on which that level rests, and so it becomes without basis. It becomes very difficult to actually go into certain thorny ethical uh, difficulties. There's nothing. There's no. Nothing's in place to help us there, and so ethics. Uh, slides to a kind of law, and underneath that law is a kind of moral nihilism, uh, a, a vacuum, a kind of moral vacuum where higher ethical sensibilities in particular, higher values, um, and ethical discourse should or could be.
So the whole thing is this slide to a kind of contest or conflict between so-called rights. My right to do this, your right to do that. And there's no good, really good, uh, well thought out um, or deep, let's say deep basis for deciding between these conflicting rights. Or even um, for there's no basis uh, for approaching the issue ethically any deeper. So, one of the things I'd like to, or one of the ways I'm sort of thinking about these talks is, is asking the question to myself and to you, what do we need? What do we need in an approach to ethics? What do we need in an ethical philosophy? And using that question of what we need to sort of help uh, direct us and navigate us through um, you know, a lot of different uh, possible ethical theories and seeing how soul-making dharma uh, and soul-making ethical dharma um, might uh, um, um, supply us with those needs um, and, uh, and, and, and navigate us through these the sort of what has become a kind of uh, quagmire without signposts. So I could say need, I could say wishes, but one thing, first of all, uh, generally speaking, is it's not, or it's not primarily, I would say, that what we need is we need guidance about what to do, or we need um, guidelines, instruction, moral laws about what to do. Or it's not primarily, it's not it's certainly not only that we need that, maybe not even primarily that we need that. So I don't think, and for reasons I went into briefly on the Sino Soul talk, I don't think any ethical system, utilitarianism, Kant's ethics, Habermas, uh, this sort of open dialogue idea, um, open communication idea. No ethical system is actually able to inform us, to actually give us that information of what to do in every situation. There will also be moral antinomies, as as, uh, as explained uh, quite a lot of length in, in the Sino Soul talks. Sometimes a person wants. I just want to be. I just want to know what to do. I just want to know what's right and what's wrong. Tell me what to do. Give me, give me, give me a list. And sometimes that uh, that need or that felt need to know what to do may just be coming from a kind of ego fear. Sometimes, or as well, it can be just a lack of full engagement of the soul with these questions. A lack of full engagement that's actually open to the difficulties, for example, the antinomies between different um, values. So if I feel agitated um, regarding some ethical choice or ethical situation, can I tell the difference between, um, let's call it ego for want of a better word, a kind of more superficial level of my being and its concerns and its um, agitations and an agitation that's more rooted at a soul level if you like is a deeper as agitation or do I just have an aversion um, to any level of agitation any difficulty whether it's an ego level or a soul level 
So I don't think, I don't think generally speaking, that's what we actually need. Now, oftentimes that's how we think about ethics, or that's how it's come, it's come to be kind of amputated as a subject. And ethics becomes, uh, as philosophy, it becomes, okay, let's get a system or a way of thinking about uh, that will tell us what to do. And that's how the discourse has shrunk, etc. Rather, I think generally what we need is um, related more to the question, what is worthwhile? What is really worthwhile in life? What is it, as I, as I asked that question what, uh, on the Sina and Soul talks, what is it that makes life beautiful? What is it that opens up and supports and gives life to a beautiful life? And gives the beauty to a beautiful life. What is it that brings a sense of depth and to our existence? that makes life worth living, that makes a life really worth living, that brings some sacredness, including uh, a sense of sacredness regarding you know, the human being, who one is, what one is as a human being, and sacredness regarding our relationship with others, with society, and sacredness regarding our relationship with the world, the earth, with nature, with the cosmos. Because we are human beings in a cosmos. We are human beings on earth as well as we are human beings in society. So actually I think this is what ethics needs. Very generally speaking, first of all, ethics um, needs that. We need to think about it in a broader way. We need to approach it looking for something much broader. Something which has been, as I said, amputated from the whole exploration, philosophical uh, domain of inquiry and the whole conversation. It's what matters in that sense about living a life worth living in that direction to a life of beauty. This is... um, I think, most generally speaking, what, what, what's needed to save ethics, to redeem it, to re-elevate uh, it and, and open it out again into a really um, flourishing uh, uh, subject, an area of exploration that's actually then commensurate with our problems, capable um, of addressing the you know, immense problems we have now as a species and the immense problems we're causing us as other species. And, and the immense problems we have in society is actually adequate to that task. So very generally speaking, we need to move from the question of not only what to do, but um, uh, what makes life beautiful? What makes life really a life that is worth living? What is the good, to use the ancient terminology that I uh, talked about in, in, in Sina and Soul? So this is more than just law, and it's also more than economy. We think the economy matters, because if the economy is okay, then uh, you know, people will be okay, because then they'll be able to pursue what they want to pursue. So if we take care of the law and the economy, and then within that, everyone can decide for themselves what they want to do and what they feel is important. So we need more than that. We absolutely need more than that, and I'm not the first person uh, to, to recognize this and to say something about it, of course. 
But on the other hand, I don't think it's possible anymore in uh, modern or postmodern society to impose um, uh, this or that X or Y belief or activity as this is what you must do uh, uh, to impose ethically to be an ethical person. Uh, it's, it's, we have the law for that limited area, but further than that, it's actually no longer possible to impose X or Y from the outside, this, this belief, this activity, etc. So, what matters, what makes life important? What makes life rather rather deep, beautiful, meaningful, worth living? These are the questions that need um, opening up again, I think. And as I said, that's related to a sense of sacredness. Um, and as I'm going into what, what the sacredness of the human being as well, as well as sacredness of the earth, the cosmos, and our social relations but with regard to the human being you know not uh, we have to also you know not be very not be completely naive perhaps you know looking back um, at the 60s a lot of people felt love and flower power and it was all a little naive in terms of uh, what that could really accomplish without um what it was supposing of human nature, and also what it could what could be accomplished without a more sort of sophisticated practice and and philosophy. So on the one hand, not not wanting to be naive about human being, hum, you know, the, the nature of human being, but also not wanting to be pessimistic about human beings. And I want to come back to this as one of the themes uh, that's quite central as well. So it's quite a big ask, and also, you know, I touch on this with Buddha Dharma as well. The fi- just following the five precepts could um, be regarded as only uh, a kind of safeguard for society. If everyone did that, then society would be a safe place um, that would allow people to do what they want to do. And if part of what they want to do is get awakened, then that's good. Um, on the one hand, or a kind of minimum safeguard for personal liberation on the other. So we're really talking here about ethics as ethos, as I explain in Sila and Soul, as something that's much bigger and has to do with meaningfulness and making life beautiful and worthwhile, and that whole question, and the sense of um, uh, sacredness. So what we need is uh, a way of navigating that area, an instrument, uh, something like a compass. And we need training and education how to use such an instrument. We need to excuse me, open up what ethics means beyond just taking care of law and economy to, to try it ensure everyone's rights are, are, are kind of not trampled on by someone else's uh, actions. But we also can't impose 
everyone goes northeast, or whatever. We need a way of navigating, methods of navigating, an instrument, something like a compass, um, and training, education, how to use that instrument. So, a way of orienting, which is that's different than a, a prescribed direction. As I said, not everyone go northeast, and uh, or prescribed direction together with proscribed directions, uh, prohibited directions, um, regarding material things, material activities. understand the difference there? So rather than saying this actual activity or this thing is, is wrong, that one is right in itself, in, in themselves, these things, those things, those activities, we prescribe this one and we proscribe that one, prohibit that one. We need a way of orienting. So it's not so much the thing in itself, the activity in itself, but a way of orienting to this whole question. And it might be for the let's call it, let's say the least capable in society, it may be necessary um, that they are limited to prescribed and proscribed directions. It may be. But there's also this question, you know, what's innate capacity and innate limitation when it with regard to ethics and what's possible with education? It's a tricky question. And has, you know, history far back as, as, well, before the Enlightenment when they took a certain stand on that. And they believed everyone was tabula rasa, it was just a matter of education. It's tricky. But might it be possible for there to be a, a more widespread education at some point? This might sound very elitist, but might it be possible for there to be a more widespread education that offers and uh, teaches us, trains us, in, in ways of orienting, in a practice, practices that help us orient uh, in the realm of uh, ethos and opening up that sense of, of life and navigating well. Opening up the sense of beautiful life, deep, meaningful life, and navigating well. Knowing that that might be different between different people to a certain extent. And I think part of that, uh, part of what immediately uh, is kind of required and suggested by that way of opening up, the, or, or by that way of thinking about ethics and opening up the idea of what we're actually after there, what we actually need in the most general sense, um, what comes immediately is the is the possibility and the need for a relationship of love and and of eros with the virtues, with the values, as I uh, talked about in, in Sila and Salt. And as I'm going to go into in a minute, you know, then this, this opens up um, in many ways how we can uh, think about and explore the whole domain of ethics. Things like sins of omission, 
start to have their place. Emotion, with regard to ethics, starts to have uh, its place, but a more mature place. I'll come back to these things. So, if I think about what's my sort of wish list, if you like, for uh, an ethical system or an approach to ethics, a way of thinking about ethics, or what do we need? What do we need? What does it seem to me that we need as a species right now in terms of uh, approaching ethics, thinking about ethics, constructing frameworks for ethics? You know, I would say partly what I've already said, that it needs to be, ethics needs to be uh, more than law. More than law and more important than law. And ethics needs also to be more than just an idea of um, my rights, your rights. It needs more than just an idea of our our individual rights. More generally, as I said, it... um, it needs to open up beyond this whole question of what to do. What should I do? What's right here? Right in a different sense there. And more to this question about how to live. What is what is a beautiful life? What makes a life really worth living? And have depth. So it needs to be more than law. More than that question. More than law. More than rights. All these things are connected. It needs to allow place for this idea of sins of omission, omission, sins of omission as well, but sins of omission, uh, that we can neglect to do certain things. It needs to expand that notion and give it place, give it space. uh, These are are a list of things that I'm going to weave through I'm going to try to weave together through the talk, um, and they'll be coming and going in and out uh, as as we go through. It needs, as I said, also uh, to include emotion, but it must transcend, or rather it, it must be more than just emotion. And it must give us a mature place to our emotion, so that's a third thing. Or fourth, depending on how you're counting. So not just what to do is one. Um, more than laws and rights, let's say that's to have a place, space for sins of omission. Three. Um, fourth is um, including emotion, but not uh, re- not uh, it, it, not reduced to emotion, not limited by emotion, and giving mature place to emotion. That would be four. It must include love and eros. As I said, that would be five. Number six, it must have dimensionality. This is really important. You know, and I mentioned this in, in uh, the Sina and Soul talks, but for ethics to work, and this is, of course, all these, all these needs and these requirements of this wish list, all the elements are connected. That's why I can only weave them, weave them together rather than present them in separately. Something needs to be sensed as or granted a higher dimensionality. And in which, in that dimensionality, in in which meaningfulness and purpose and sanctity actually reside. And without something being uh, sensed, uh, sensed as having or granted 
or believed to have or felt to have a higher dimensionality. It's very hard to to make any ethical headway to say anything meaningful um, or uh, justifiable about ethics. Because the justification of whatever we do in ethics needs to be rooted in another dimension. Even if you say, don't kill, you say, why? The why needs to go to another dimension. And, as I said, meaningfulness, purpose, and sanctity uh, kind of organically, intrinsically reside in, in some other dimension. It need, we need to sense ethics that way. Even if sanctity is something secularly, kind of, uh, secularly, secularly conceived, it doesn't matter. So this is a big subject, and I want to go into this. What does that mean? How, how, how has it been attempted in the past? How might we attempt it now? But attempts without dimensionality, as I'll explain, usually just fail, have failed. Attempts to explain ethics without dimensionality, to to promote an ethical system without without dimensionality, they've just failed. So, as I said, this uh, oh, and um, and so that's six, and then seven would be uh, six is dimensionality. Seven would be um, and must be connected if we're talking about dimensionality is questions of ontology. What's kind of you know, why can you claim something as have, having a certain dimensionality and therefore um, intrinsic meaningful, meaningfulness, purpose, purposefulness, sanctity? You need an ontology, ontological and epistemological arguments for that, justifications for that. So woven into all this is um, our questions of ontology and epistemology, as always, unavoidable. And uh, and certainly as Buddhists, we need to go beyond uh, the limited ontology of just emptiness as an answer to everything. Okay. As I explained uh, in a little bit the other day in one of the other talks. So that would be seven. And number eight would be a sense of what a human being is. What is it to be a human being and what, what can a human being be? So all this is tied together, these eight, uh, eight items on, on the, the list of, of needs, what an ethical system needs nowadays, what I think an ethical system needs, what we need as a species these days for an ethical system. Eight things, they're all tied together, they're not really separate in a way, one implies other, drags in another, and so, yes, as I said, I can't really go through this in, in a linear way. Um, so, there's a little bit of introduction. Um, some of what I'm going to say uh, now tonight, we'll see how far we get, but some of it may well still sound introductory to a superficial listening. You kind of might feel I'm waiting for the meaty bit. Um, some of you won't, of course, but some of you might be. To a superficial listening, it might, I'm not sure, it might sound a little bit introductory. But if you understand uh, the basic sort of theme or what I'm trying to uh, uh, get at here or, or offer, which is um, why why should we uh, 
get behind it, that um, the approach of sensing the soul. I want to advocate. The basic theme is an advocation, um, an advocating of the sensing the soul approach to ethics. But if you, so if you understand that theme, you'll um, perhaps even already you'll you'll have immediately heard what we said already is completely um, wrapped up in that theme, and there's already some uh, very good reasons that you can hear what we've already said in uh, why reasons why uh, sensing the soul would be a good approach, a really helpful approach, one really helpful approach to ethics. Okay. All right, so um mentioned this thing, <coughs> or this aspect where, just checking I've said everything I want to say so, say so far, I think so. Um, mentioned this aspect about, um, you know, the way we think about ethics needs to be um, more than... Uh, we need to prevent this kind of slide um, of ethics down to questions of law and rights. Okay, so it's interesting some of what happened in the exile rebellions, extinction rebellions recently, and how some people were in, 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 in you know, people on, on the street there were a few voices saying, uh, these people, XR activists, etc., they have no respect for law and order. They don't care about law and order. And that sort of uh, protest. And, you know, so let's go into this a little bit. Law and order are definitely, uh, or is, if we take them together, uh, law and order in a society is definitely of value. If we, if we use that language that Hartman used, definitely a value. But its rank as a value in the hierarchy of values is always going to be subordinate. It has to be subordinate to the ethical values it upholds and supports. So the rank of law and order as a value, if we take them together, has to be subordinate to the ethical values that law and order are upholding. Or, or that they support. So, you know, law and order were healthy, robust, respected in Nazi Germany and in Mussolini's Italy, two very uh, cultures with a lot of law and order, as far as I understand the history books. But ethically, the whole thing was on a, was on a you know, very, very... I mean, dubious is, is completely completely unethical foundation, completely um, ethically wrong foundation. Therefore, the law and order there were uh, not valuable, were anti-values. So law, law and order is not in itself a value. It depends, uh, let's put it that way, it depends on the ethical values that it's trying to uphold purpose of law and order is to uphold ethical values. And somehow we've kind of, as I said, they've kind of got divorced. Law and order has kind of got divorced from ethics. So that people are valuing law and order in and of itself, regardless of the ethical questions um, that uh, are uh, or the ethical or the ethics that that law and order is supporting, whether they're you know, good ethics or bad ethics. 
So it was interesting, you know, in uh, when Yanai was in court for one of his XR actions not too long ago, and the judge, uh, I think it was at some point in, in the proceedings, and Yanai was allowed to um, present his case, which tried to present an ethical case, ethical grounds for breaking the law, breaking law and order. And the judge at some point made the court made the uh, response to everyone that this is a, a, a court of law and not a court of ethics. Um, now it sounds like this judge was actually pretty good, but his hands were tied, and he made a very valuable point. It doesn't sound like he really drew out all the implications, or maybe even all of what he felt about that limitation. This is a court of law, not a court of ethics. And he might have really wished that it was a court of ethics and have been able to uh, really come down much more on the side of the exile protesters being uh, tried there. But basically, um, the, the, it was not set up. Uh, there, there was, they were not equipped to have an ethical discussion or an ethical court. We are not, in our society, equipped to have such. There's no basis. There's very little dialogue. I mean, people debate, you know, whether stem cell, using stem cells is, you know, ethical or not, or euthanasia, you know, what's it called, dignified, you know, assisted suicide, etc. Again, it's back to this question of, what is it right to do? What ought I to do? What ought I not to do? To do? These, that kind of level of discussion. What is right? What is wrong? What ought I to do? What ought I not to do? And as Charles Taylor puts it, the ought to do is what is, uh, well he calls it, the ought to do has, been, has become divorced from the good to be. So it's good. Do you understand? The ought to do. That becomes the limitation, the, 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 the circumscribing of the, of the ethical uh, investigation. What ought I to do? As I said before. And that whole question has been divorced from the much uh, deeper question, if you like, of what is it good to be? And this whole notion of the good and the beautiful. This uh, question of what is it good to be, which is this question of what makes a life really worthwhile, what makes a life a beautiful life, that has been jettisoned, and in je- from the whole, uh, it's been jettisoned from um, philosophical discussion, from ethical discussion. But they're divorced, and then they're jettisoned, and that brings problems, it brings huge problems. And one of them is there's the problems it brings um, of this divorce of of questions of law from questions of ethics. I don't know what the judge was thinking or feeling, but um, maybe someone will have the kind of courage at some point, someone in that position will have the courage, or we will have the the courage to admit the gap, admit the gap there, admit the hole, admit the kind of yawning nihilistic abyss above, above which the sort of pomp and power of the law courts attempts to suspend... Uh, themselves. It's it's resting on on you know either nothing 
a kind of moralistic nihilism or very, very thin ice. And this is connected to the whole question about, you know, my right to do this and your right to do that, my right to do uh, whatever it is, my right to go on holiday, my right to enjoy myself after work, my right to whatever, and so much gets dragged into this, uh, into these kind of claims of rights. Now it might be soon that uh, my right to um, fly for a holiday is reckoned legally or recognized legally somehow as less of ethically and then legally as less of a right uh, than uh, the right of others to have a have a home that's not flooded or not um, in you know on fire or in in drought the right for others to to live in a habitable planet might be regarded as a uh, a right that trumps my right to fly on holiday when I feel like it after I've worked hard. It might be that that day comes, and it might be that that day comes sooner, I hope it does, but um, sooner than later. But even then, even if there is that sort of, um, which there isn't now, that, that switch of of the degree of rights, uh, that, that the height of rights in in public opinion and that gets enshrined in law somehow in ethical mind wider ethical mindset and in law even then I would say it's still not an adequate and fertile basis for ethics something is missing it's still just about those rights and the sort of competing rights contesting rights and then a decision that this this right actually always trumps that right even then, is still, still then, it won't be adequate, and it won't be fertile as a basis. Just that question about rights. And you can see, even at that level of um, competing or conflicting rights, there's so much dishonesty and distortion that comes in when people talk on that level. And that, to me, betrays the fact that we're actually lacking a means of approaching ethical questions. So we just have this conversation about rights, but there's no there's no actual way of approaching ethical question. The means, the practices, the way of thinking about it just becomes my right versus your right, or your right versus my sense of those people on the other side of the world and their rights. So much dishonesty and distortion that just partly, partly that betrays not something so much about human nature, perhaps, but just our lacking of a means of approaching ethical questions. So, um, some of you may know this, but there was a, I think it was a subgroup of XR. I think they were called Heathrow Paws, or, no, that was something else. Anyway, there were a couple of groups who tried to... uh, shut down airports or prevent airports from uh, planes from taking off and landing because to draw attention to the huge and often unnecessary uh, amount of carbon emissions that come from flying. And they attempted in different ways to uh, stop the functioning of airports for you know, a 
few hours or a day or two days or whatever it was. And it was, I say interesting, but it was also kind of alarming uh, and also totally uh, to be expected and kind of normalized. The response um, of the airport authorities and others. So um, this happened, I think, uh, one one situation was a city airport in the middle of London and um, a lot of activists went there and just sat in the lobby and sort of blocked entrances and, and things like that. So in an attempt to, uh, to, to stop planes um, flying for a while. And the sort of, what I'm going to say is dis, dishonest and distorted rhetoric uh, of, of the response and the statements um, from the city airport authorities um, who talked uh, about needing to ensure the safe running or the safe operation of this airport and then gleefully reported that they had ensured that when the police had cleared the protesters. And this is just completely normal and expected kind of language and, and trope and, 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 and attitude and response. It hides so much. Because the use of that word, the safe operation, um, is a deliberate deflection and distortion. It links the XR protest with terrorism, which, if you've read the news recently, apparently they were linked anyway by a police organization called Prevent. Um, and now they've retracted that link. But anyway, there was in in the rhetoric, in the spin of the response, this deliberate deflection, distortion, as if XR protesters are like terrorists. Airport functioning is safe. But you know, the, the carbon dioxide emissions from flying is not safe, and doubly so in an airport like City Airport, where it's mostly really very rich people and corporate executives um, flying here and there where they don't need to fly to Manchester or, you know, however long that is on the train, a couple of hours or whatever it is. The, fly, the emissions are not necessary. The emissions are not safe. We know that now. Carbon dioxide emissions are not safe. Was there... Anyone whose safety was affected, whose actual safety was affected by that, uh, uh, any of the passengers whose safety was affected by that XR sit-in protest, it's a, it's a spin. You might as well, to safe running of the airport, you might as well talk about the safe running of Auschwitz and wanting to ensure the safe running of Auschwitz. Okay, it's, it's maybe extreme, but, the, but th- there's a parallel there. How ridiculous... That sounds. If someone, if someone was uh, an SS officer, was wanting to ensure the safe running of Auschwitz, the safe emission of un, safe un, emission of unnecessary CO two into the atmosphere, usually by very rich people who don't need to fly. I don't know gas and gas. The safe running of Auschwitz gas chambers is like the safe the safe release of CO2 gas into the into the atmosphere. It's just a bigger gas chamber. Even more kind of insidious, I think, 
is, uh, you know, in terms of the, the kind of not complete honesty and distortion that gets um, roped in through certain kind of common tropes, um, is uh, that the XR protests were uh, preventing normal, hard-working people putting food on their table and a roof above their heads. And people, normal people who want to go about their normal lives. So I heard this on a TV debate. Um, I don't have, I don't have a better idea about how uh, how the consciousness, how the alarm can be better sounded, how the consciousness can be changed in relation to climate change and species extinction. I don't have a better idea than XR. I have, I have a lot of difficulties with how XR does things or what it decides to do, but I really don't know a better idea, speaking as someone who's been involved in environmental activism for you know, a long, long time, written countless letters, tried to pursue it in, in the sort of democratic, uh, in the li- along the lines of democratic process. It's a so-called democratic process. I don't have a better idea. But then there's this trope in response. They're, these XR people are preventing normal, hard-working people, putting food on their table, put, having a roof above their heads, people who want to, normal people who want to go about their normal lives. Is that even really true? Is, I just, it's really a question. Is it really true? Did the XR protests really prevent hard-working people putting food on their table? That there wasn't food that evening? Or a roof above their heads? Is that really true? And I'll come back to it because it might be in a couple of, in a couple of cases. It might be. Um, but what proportion of cases? And is it really true? It's just a trope. It's a spin. And regarding normal life, it's like, what if so-called normal life brings very abnormal disaster for others? As abnormal as the fires in Australia. Normal life brings abnormal disaster for others, and then, and then for myself in my normal life too. Normal life was pursued in 1938 Nazi Germany by a lot of people. I just want to go about my normal life, but there's a bigger ethical question here. Mass extinction, mass extermination of species is not normal. It's not normal. It's by far the most abnormal thing that has occurred on Earth since the Earth has been here, maybe since, apart from the beginning of life, perhaps. Maybe that was more normal. And there's something even more insidious going on with this particular trope, because, you know, almost no one wants to say, uh, uh, of course, yeah, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't want anyone to be uh, deprived of food or to lose their job. And because there's this gig economy, and some people, you know, in this gig economy where you have no, um, no benefits, no no sa- no safety net at all. You're just not a slave, but but uh, there's very little safety net there for you. And that has become a reality. Gig economy and the economy of austerity. And so it might be true that for some people, getting blocked by an XR protest and then they're late for work and they get fired and they have a gig economy job and they're really 
on the edge, and they're living at that level of poverty in society and that, that uh, uh, level of vulnerability. Of course, that might be true. But one, how, how, how many people does that affect? But more importantly, what, what's happened in this trope is the protesters, the people who are disrupting, get blamed um, for actually for decades, decades of systematic political socio-economic um, policies of austerity and the gig economy. They do something and they're blamed for the potential results on that, where actually most of the conditions are resting in decades of um, uh, socio-economic policies, again, which rest on very, very shaky uh, ethical foundations. So, yes, certain XR actions, I think, could have been um, better thought out in terms of the demographics and the areas and, the, and who they would, who exactly they would affect. I really do think that. But there's also something uh, a little, uh, well, more than a little, sneaky and insidious, dishonest, dis, uh, disorienting and distorting about what, what has become quite a typical kind of response. It's such an easy trope. And it's hiding something. But the larger point, again, is about uh, our ethical thinking needing to be more than, more than law. We need to the slide into ju- it's just about law, and that's all we can kind of uh, talk about. Or the slide into, into just... Ethics is just about rights. What are the rights and how do we protect people's rights? And all this, as I said, if, if we expand it, it open, if we expand the conversation, the idea of what ethics is, then it opens up, um, it opens up areas for what, what used to be called, I think, in the Catholic Church, sins of omission. It's neglecting to do something. Um, so this is... This is actually, for me, quite an important uh, has quite important implications. Just as a sort of thought experiment, um, when you compare, you know, let's take let's take Nazi Germany as as a, as a sort of setting for this thought experiment, um, and and compare uh, ethical transgressions. Person A speaks out. During the Third Reich, during the, the reign of the Nazis, he, she, they speak out against Nazi policy and ideas, publicly and at the risk of their life. Privately, they're having an extramarital affair. Okay, they're involved with, with someone else, married, but they're involved with someone else romantically, sexually. That's person A. Person B is uh, completely faithful to their their partner, their spouse, but does not speak up about the uh, Nazi policies, Nazi ideas. After the war, they may say, along with so many others, that they disagreed and they, uh, with Nazi policies and they thought Nazism was terrible. But they say that after the war, when it was safe. 
Okay, person A, person B, and what they do, they're not antinomies. The, po the point here is to ask and kind of see how you, I, each of us, tend to assess ethical misdemeanors. You understand? What's your reaction to person A? And your, your ethical reaction and assessment of person A uh, compared to your ethical reaction to person B. Person A spoke out at the risk of their life, but they were having an extramarital affair. Person B was completely faithful to their spouse, but did not speak up until after the war, when they said they disagreed and thought Nazism was terrible. Maybe they did disagree and think Nazism was terrible. But during, during the Nazi reign, they did not. Just to ask and see how you tend to relatively assess those ethical misdemeanors. One of them is an omission, a sin of omission. The second one, person B. And this also, as I think I pointed out in The Necessity of Fantasy, in the five precepts, as they're usually presented negatively, there's no place for a sin of omission. So that actually, um, walking by uh, on the edge of a lake and someone drowning there, um, to just keep walking mindfully by, and then the person drowns or someone else has to save them or whatever. Um, technically speaking, that's not an omission. Uh, that, that's not a, 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 a transgression, an ethical transgression, a sin. I'm still keeping five precepts. Technically speaking. Of course, Thich Nhat Hanh has... Uh, added the, the positive side to it, which is very, very helpful. But technically speaking, it it doesn't. The, Bu uh, the Buddhist precepts, as they as they're usually thought of in terms of the five precepts, don't don't leave room for what we ought, um, what we what we can rise up, how, how how much we can rise up ethically, and extend ourselves to the higher virtues. Now, what if we translate that uh, this hypothetical scenario, these hypothetical uh, ethical transgressions? There's two kinds of transgressions there: person A's transgression in terms of their marriage, person B's, B's transgression in terms of their sin of omission, what they have um, failed to uh, rise up to. And what happens now if you translate that to our situation now? where we know about and somehow even participate in a kind of willful uh, extinction, extermination of millions of species and climate change. So we know that's going on, that those uh, actions, those policies are perpetuated in our time by our societies. Just as in Nazi Germany it was clear what was perpetrated. Even people said they didn't know about what was going to happen to the Jews, I think most, and the, and the gypsies and the homosexuals and etc., communists. I think most people knew. So translate that to our, our situation now. 
So this phrase, sins of omission, can mean different things. Um, but uh, what, what I want to point to here is that we need to open up, I think we're t- talking about needs now, what do, what do we need to bring to, what, what does an ethical system need to have? And it needs to have the, a place in it, a space in it, um, uh, spaces and places in it for the possibility for the, uh, of, of aspiring to higher values and virtues, for the recognition that it's important and it's good to aspire to higher values, higher virtues. There's limited space for that in ethical systems that are not based on virtue. I wonder that. I wonder if there's limited space for uh, those kinds of aspirations or the recognition of their importance and, and that it's good to aspire in ethical systems that are not based on virtue. I wonder. I'm not sure if that's correct, but, um, but it may be. These ethical systems based on virtue make, make that much more clear, let's put it that way. So if we go back to the legal thing, um, I think I've moved, I've lost count now, since I got ill, I was living at Guy House, and I got ill, and I moved, the, basically I moved out the morning of my operation, that was it, I never went back to Guy House since then. I think I've moved four or five times since then, renting one place or another. And I've never I'd never rented in England before because I lived in the States, uh, but, so I don't know if it's an English thing or what. But um, I would say I had four or five places and three different landlords, I think. Um, and while it's very clear that... Um, None of my landlords have acted illegally. Um, they've always kept within the bounds of of the law in terms of how they do things or raise the rent or limit 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 things in in this way or that way. Um, and one could say, from a certain point of view, that they've acted ethically. They haven't un- acted unethically. It one would be very hard push, and I, I, I would you'd struggle to find anyone that, that would say these people have acted virtuously in their uh, in being a landlord or in their dealings with the tenant. So there's again in the wider society there's this shrinking. Um, away from the idea or, or, the, or the attraction to higher values and higher virtues and the place for that as, as a possibility and the kind of encouragement to aspire and to reach out um, to that kind of thing, to that kind of level. There's, we just need to be, we just need to keep within the bounds of law. There's a sort of minimum, the lowest common denominator. And then that's regarded, well, that's ethical, right? Sometimes ethical is a bit more than the law, but uh, there's there's a shrinking here. So I don't know. 
I'm not sure that it's the case that this kind of thing is not possible in other ethical with other ethical systems. There's something about a virtue-based ethical system that makes it more apparent, that invites it, that sets it up that way. So going back to Hartman's hierarchy of values, and still with the notion that the higher values will need to rest on the lower, and including the, the, the knowing that there will be inevitable antinomies between, uh, between different values, particularly values at the same level. But that kind of virtue-based system, value-based system, still keeps this, uh, what I'm calling um, sins of omission, that whole notion open, and this uh, possibility and encouragement, stimulation and invitation uh, to, to aspire higher, to higher values, higher virtues. So different ethical systems open uh, different ways. They open more or less. Um, not too long ago, I overheard a conversation between um, two people. Who, who each of them was a relatively new parent. Uh, it was a man and a woman. They weren't a couple, um, so they were each in 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 a in a, in a partnership, and each had uh, a young child, uh, one one young child, and they seemed to agree very easily um, that very close bonding between mother and child, uh, where the mum rarely goes away um, and breastfeeding is continued until late, etc., uh, etc., et this kind of thing. That, that kind of very close bonding, they seem to agree, would guarantee that the child, when grown, would not cause harm in the world. And I just wondered whether that was a bit naive. You know, peer influence becomes huge as time goes on, as does the influence of advertisement and social and cultural norms, in- including ethical ones. And I can think of a um, a few a family actually that um, I've known the children in that family, the parents and the children for for a lot of years, and uh, the children since they were babies. And they're now mostly in their 20s. And they have all become you know, very nice. Uh, they're very relatively well-balanced psychologically. They're polite. They're you know, clean. Their uh, personal hygiene is okay. They're um, uh, not obviously unkind. There's this you know, degree of kindness there. They're very okay, it seems, with expressing affection in their and so in their with their parents and in, in their social relations, etc. So that that's not a problem, etc. Um, etc. Et but they don't think twice, for example, about flying many times a year. They're quite wealthy, and they don't think twice about what that might contribute to the suffering of others, human and non-human. And there is also, you know, it seems to me, very little interest or impetus, uh, interest in or impetus towards the higher virtues. 
So this is not, not quite what I mean by sins of omission, but, but, but it's related. So, is it enough, you know, this idea that we won't cause harm if we have, um, which they did, very affectionate parenting with a lot of good, healthy physical contact um, with mum and dad and, and all that taken care of, good, uh, pretty good family dynamics, you know, all that. So the affection from and healthy attachment to mother or primary care or whatever is probably, I don't think, it's probably, it's probably not enough to bring about the, the kind of ethical maturity the world needs now. We may need um, moral education, which, as I said, is kind of gone away. It's been ruled taboo. It's hard to find in our society. We may need further moral education, whether it's by the family or whatever. And the role of education and moral education might be huge, but, um, as I said, in our society we lack any but the most basic moral education. Even that may be excuse me, maybe less really a moral education than one about conforming to norms and obeying the law. So what is it, what do we need to open up um, a, a range of possibility? Uh, the, 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 the impetus and the interest in the higher virtues, as well as this whole notion of sins of omission, and neglected to do something. More moral, some kind of moral education that is not um, in place uh, at present in Western societies. And, and that needs to be based on probably a very different way of framing and relating to ethics than is... Uh, you know, they are presently the two the two issues: the lack of education and the the lack of a good way of framing and relating to ethics. They're completely related. So, of course, when there is the possibility to aspire, when that's opened and deemed important, the possibility to aspire to higher values, when it's recognised as something good. Um, then, actually, uh, love and eros for, uh, for virtues, for the virtues, and love and eros for, for ethics becomes possible and becomes normal because there's that possibility of a beyond, that possibility of extending, rather than just a kind of disgust at what, what one sees, at what one deems or decides is unethical, or... Uh, or kind of sentimentality, that kind of disgust or sentimentality you'd get in, you know, tabloid newspapers, Daily Mail, or whatever. It's all uh, pretty limited ethically. I mean, not only is it completely uh, sort of trammeled in, in just one direction, pretty obvious what, what, what they're going to oppose or not, but it's very limited in terms of um, the the emotionality in it. There's no real place there for genuine love of 
virtue or ethics and genuine eros. So I'm saying that, again, this, as I said, is part of the list, part of, part of the list of needs. There needs to be, a, ethics needs to become um, an area and a domain in, in relation to which we can, we can and do feel love and, and eros and plenty of it and beauty and all, because that's all going to be tied in if we, I'm using that word eros in, in the soul-making sense. So I'm not only saying this because I think ethics is an interesting subject and I love it, it's, it's that, that exactly that is the appropriate relationship with this subject. If we're thinking about what is a beautiful life, what is a, a life worth living, what is a life with depth and dimensionality and meaningfulness, and with this possibility for higher virtues and, and the beauty of that and extending myself, then it's exactly eros and love that is that is an appropriate relationship with that whole domain, with that whole subject. So I remember in the Seal and Soul talks, I, I, I played played a little bit with different, uh, and I offered different etymologies um, connected with the word virtue. Um, so I don't know if I mentioned these two. These two may be a repeat. <coughs> um, but talking about, I was talking about the etymology of the word or um, the kind of <coughs> phonetic relations, not etymological relations, but uh, relations of sound, um, which may not be etymological, but nevertheless, as I explained in those talks, can still function as a, a uh, part of an association a complex of association, so that we associate the word virtue subconsciously with other words. So either way, it doesn't matter. But two, two I want to point out here, um, uh, it was etymologi- etymologically or not, or, or associatively, phonetically, and two I want to point out, just in, in relation to what I just said, they may be repeats, I don't know, but I can't remember, but so the use of the word virtually, uh, the colloquial use of the word virtually, um, uh, we talk about um, being, well, let's do it the other way around. We talk about virtual reality, so related to the word virtue, virtual reality, virtual media, as an image of something, so electronically or on the internet. So, so virtual is related to image, and image may be related to virtue. Virtue may be related to image. Do you understand? Etymologically or phonetically. This is what I want to get at. Virtues being allowed to to be imaginal. Allowed to have their imaginal dimensions. Um, So that a virtue... well, let's do the other one. So there's this virtual reality, so an Im- which means an image of something, a virtual this, uh, and and so virtues becoming imaginal, being allowed to become imaginal. Virtually also means colloquially. It's it's virtually this. It's almost that. He was virtually whatever. Virtually he was virtually dead or, or virtually whatever. Um, um, is almost something. It's approaching something. So both these meanings, a kind of image or virtual reality, and this almost something or approaching something, both of them imply the idea of an image, an imaginal uh, something, imaginal virtue, and our lives and our behaviours as um, 
possibly approaching that, possibly reflecting, refracting that image, and um, uh, or uh, an I, uh, you know, an ideal reality, and as we said before, an ideational imaginal, an ideal reality in the sense explained in in uh, the four parables talks, and this imperfectly approaching instance of that ideal reality. Here's the ideational, imaginal reality of this virtue, and we always imperfectly uh, approach it. In in the instances of our behavior, that's the instantiation of the ideal reality, of the idea. So this um, virtues become uh, imaginal, and our behavior can be imperfect images of and almost, almost approaching that. Both of these uh, uh, allow and imply that eros is a possibility. When there's an, imag- an, a, an imaginal beyond, when there's a, a, a higher dimension, something I can't quite reach but I'm trying to reach, both of them, uh, the, this, uh, this etymology or playing around with the word virtue suggests to us then the dimensionality of virtue and also that eros is a possibility in relationship to them. So allowing virtues and values to be ideational images, the ideational imaginal, implies and brings automatically or involved in that, there will be eros then for those virtues and values. As I talked about the other day when I was talking about people saying, oh, you have so much willpower. Actually, maybe it's more a matter of eros. Eros for certain virtues, values, eros for, uh, in that case, the ideas that wanted to be expressed, eros for the future sangha, etc. Love and eros, more than willpower. And also said sometimes, of course, in a long creative project, in a long-term relationship, in parenting, there's going to be times when you're not feeling that eros. And same, same in... Uh, uh, when we come to ethics and our relationship with virtues and values, of course there's going to be a, a time when we don't feel the eros, when it doesn't feel juicy, when we don't feel inspired and called to what's more beautiful. Of course they are, but we can still, as in a long-term creative project, if we have the right relationship to it, as in a long-term uh, intimate relationship or friendship even, as in a long-term um, parenting, you know, we're still, even if we're not in touch with that eros, we're still, we can still be rooted in, in the knowing of something. We know firsthand for ourselves, this is meaningful for me. This is part of my duty. I love this. Even when I don't feel those things, I know them. This has eros. And you can see how many of the elements of the imaginal are there. So, this connects with another of the needs I mentioned, that... Um, the way we think about ethics needs to be um, needs to include more than our emotions. Needs to include more than just our moral feeling, even. So we need to have our emotions. Our emotions, in other words, I think ethics is not just a matter of cold rationality. Some people do present such systems, and I'll 
maybe talk about that later in another talk. But I think, you know, our heart and our heart's responses are part of uh, what we what should be involved in our instrument, in our compass. It's an element of our compass. So we need emotions and moral feelings, but we need also more than that. Eros is actually, as you know, more than an emotion. And eros, I, I, again, I mean eros in the whole soul-making sense that we that we use that term, eros. So yes, we need emotion, but we need more than emotion. And part of what's more is we need eros, and partly we need um, a hierarchy of values, or some sense of a hierarchy of values. I want to come back to that because it means I want to spin that a little bit differently as we go on. But that, what that really means is we need a conceptual framework. So we need emotion, but we need more than emotion. We need eros, we need a conceptual framework, and we need a way, ways of orienting, ways of practicing. Yeah. So more than just emotion to guide us. So obviously, you know, the value of something like passion uh, depends on what it serves and what the intention is, just like we talked about law and order. Passion is an emotion, but it, it, its value, actually, its moral value, depends on what it's serving and what its intention is. Loyalty, I'm not sure if it's an emotion or a stance, but it's connected. The value of loyalty, even passionate loyalty, also depends on its object. You know, a football supporter, completely loyal to their team. That has a certain value, but a pretty limited value in terms of how valuable that passion is and that loyalty is. So sometimes you see, um, you know, grown men and the only place where they're really expressing um, any emotion or any place you'd see them cry might be um, in relation to a football result. You have to wonder what's what's happening there, what's happening with the heart, why so limited, why so strong in this area and so limited in other areas. And what value does it have, really, if it's just about whether a football team loses or or wins, or, or whatever. So the value is dependent on the value of, of its object. And of course, you know, for instance, the value of loyal, the loyalty, the value of the loyalty of an SS officer, again, just take Nazi Germany as an example, the value of the loyalty of an SS officer to Himmler, the, you know, the head of the SS, that's highly questionable what value, value that has. I say this because sometimes I run into people who love the sound of soul making and even start playing with images and stuff and, and seem to kind of um, shrink their sense of what's important there down to passion. And the sense of passion as something really important. It's not important, just the emotion of passion is not inherently important. It depends what it's connected to, what it serves, what the intentions are, what its objects are. I want to say something as well, just in, in connection with the emotions again, because it can be that, as I said, I feel like they're very important. 
they have a very important place in terms of our eth- ethical sensibility and how, how we're going to uh, approach ethics and, and, and uh, how we orient and navigate in our ethical, uh, the instrument, our soul instrument regarding ethics. But um, we can also sometimes overdo that and not see, kind of blind ourselves a little bit, blinker ourselves to other 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 things if we put too much emphasis on on the emotion. So take for example the idea, uh, the beautiful idea of grief rituals and grief ceremonies, um, which some of us have been involved in and, and are starting more widely now, say with regard to species extinction or climate change. And it's interesting, those grief rituals, a person might come expecting a space where they can really grieve and wail and cry and it be okay and it be kind of supported and mirrored and there's a shared space for sort of intense, deep grief, griefing emotion. But what people can find, or what I think you, we will find if you attend a few of these things, is that a grief ritual may not uh, lead to uh, or support an emotion of grief. And it may, it may not at all be because anything weird is going on in the dynamics, or it wasn't a trust, trustworthy space or a safe space. It, it actually depends how the ritual is done and how it's held. So oftentimes rituals kind of distill, a ritual distills something and contains it uh, and connects levels. A ritual connects levels. So, or some ways of, of thinking about rituals, they connect levels. And this is very important for soul making. So for example, um, we connect matter and the imaginal dimensions or the dimensions of divinity. And that's the kind of the transubstantiation of objects and matter, and you know, that's uh, something that happens in or can happen in a ritual. And it's very powerful for the soul. And as I mentioned the other day, it may involve giving and receiving and grace. And these elements, this distilling of something, this containing of something, and particularly this I, this uh, element of connecting levels. Um, and also this uh, giving and receiving and grace, all of that may not lead to a sort of opening of the floodgates of, in this case, grief. So it depends um, what the ritual is trying to do and how it is set up and kind of what levels it's aimed at. And this is actually quite important, I think, for soul makers to understand. I think, you know, is there a place for both? spaces, and call them rituals or ceremonies or, or whatever, where there can be collective grief and the depth of that grief regarding you know, species loss, extinction, extermination can be felt you know, and held together in a safe space and recognized and valued and moved through. This feeling the grief, opening to it, you know, and the importance also there of of the heart's capacity expanding. Because as I said, you know, many times recently, there can be so much grief there. And part part of the work uh, that we do in meditation is to actually expand the heart's capacity, that it knows it can feel this 
terrible, awful, seemingly bottomless griefs. Love is not even mine. And, and the heart is big enough and knows how to let that move through and how to hold it well. So can there be, can we have place um, for that kind of space and ritual together? And do we know how to set that up? And can there also be, you know, can there also be this contextualizing of grief through ritual? And a ritual that um, more in its the way that it's holding the space and the way that it's understanding how we human beings and those taking part in the ritual are relating to the whole situation and and the, and the species loss, etc., is contextualizing it and contextualizing it with dimension and imaginally and contextualizing it for the soul, not just for the heart. And that might be a lot much a lot more calmer, a lot more sober, a lot more even silent, but out of it um, might come strength, power, stamina. So theoretically, just having the grief and opening to it, one moves through the grief to 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 you know be able to be empowered to act, etc. yes. Um, but there's in a way there's openness and strength from both these kinds of rituals. Potentially there's openness and strength, power and stamina through both these kinds of rituals. But they come in very different ways. And they're given to the being in very different ways. The openness and the strength, the power, the stamina. So, emotions are vital, but they're not enough. They're not enough. So we're talking about you know, the main thrust of uh, exploring the possibility of soul-making practice as a basis um, and, and, and as a pr- an approach to ethics. And that can happen in two ways, as, as I explained in uh, the Sina Soul Talks. One is through values and virtues becoming or being allowed to become um, I- image, imaginal images, ideational imaginal images imaginal ideas, whatever we're going to call that. So that's one way. The values and virtues become imaginal, so to speak. Imaginal ideas. It can also come um, through an image, an imaginal figure, um, and uh, that imaginal figure implies, or implicit in that imaginal figure, are certain values and certain virtues. And then there our life uh, kind of... Um, so in, in, in that implication, it already implies their sort of holiness, kind of indirectly. But working with the image can also uh, lead to our manifesting those values and virtues, our eros for those values and virtues, and then our life refracting and expressing those values and virtues in its um, imperfect mimicry and echoing of of the image and the duty from the image or duties from the image so if we talk about ethics in terms of you know uh, uh, virtues we, we we talk about virtue ethics then you know 
virtues rest on, on a sense of values uh, rather than an actual system or an enforcement of law. So that virtue ethics rests on, rests on that sense, it's the sense. It's really on, on my sense of values rather than a, a kind of rational system or an enforcement flaw. That's the kind of tenor of virtue ethics. And so the soul-making you know, soul approach would also you know, most easily fit with virtue ethics, as I explained. And then again, it rests on a sense of values rather than a rationally worked out you know, a system of ra- a rational explanation or guide or, or some kind of enforcement of law or, or code or uh, you know, guidelines, ethical guidelines. And a sense of values, just extrapolating really here from what, a lot of what we said in, sense, in the Sila and Soul, a sense of values really involves sensing them with soul. In other words, this ideational imaginal. The sense of the ideation of the imaginal and sensing with so implies all the, all the eros and everything else, the sense of beauty and devotion and duty and meaningfulness and all that, all the elements. So then ethics, in that sense, implies and needs um, sensing with soul, to a certain extent, with respect to the values. So let's, let's go into this a little bit. When we... Um, sense the things and the beings of the world with soul. Values are there, and reverence is there, as elements of the imaginal. When we're sensing the soul, values and reverence are there just because they're elements of the imaginal. So there's a natural ethical relationship with them to whatever we're sensing the soul. However, there will always be something, some object or persons or whatever, left out of our sensing the soul until we notice them and give them attention and they are subsumed into the soul-making dynamic. It's also true that some um, fantasies involve enemies, what we might call enemies. So the question, what becomes of our ethical relationship with those people uh, who are our imaginal or fantastical enemies. Oh, if I've got an, you know, an image of a warrior protecting the earth from enemies, what about our ethical relationship with those enemies? So here we can talk about imaginal duty and the refraction of that, uh, how, how this, what our duty is in relation to a certain image, but also the theatre-like nature. We've gone into all this before. But in a way, those um, enemies need to be subsumed. They need to become imaginal as well. Otherwise, there's a danger of rarefying that. Rarefying the the adversity to uh, the... Yeah, rarefying the enemy too much. So, it's... You know, too much to expect, this is important to understand, it's too much to expect anyone to be sensing with soul all the time and with respect to everything. It's actually impossible um, to be sensing with soul with respect uh, to everything because everything 
is is a category that's going to get bigger and wider um, when when the soul making dynamic kicks in because it creates discovers more things more aspects. Yeah. So that's impossible anyway. But it may be um, as sensing the soul becomes more normal and more digested that any situation or thing that we attend to or you know, with respect to which we 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 have to make some kind of choice, like a, like an important choice or a major uh, choice that feels major or important for us. It may be that um, that situation becomes sensed with soul, and that therefore our relation with it becomes ethical because it's it's reverential, etc. If we have sensing the soul as the basic definition of, uh, of virtue or ethical living, the basic approach, let's say, it will not rid us of the inevitability of antinomies between values at the same level. Okay? That's not that, that can't happen. Um, I mean, it may rid a person of an antinomy that they have between two values. Sometimes, when I explore it, when I bring uh, the soul-making sensibility and practice to it, and I actually find that X is more soul-making for me than Y, even though someone else may have the reverse sense, they might find Y more soul-making than X. But if everyone was trained in soul-making dharma practice and approaching and approaching ethical choices and, and virtues through it, um, that person's choice, even though the other person disagrees, they, they choose X, I choose Y. They choose X over Y, I choose Y over X. If everyone was trained in soul-making dharma and that approach to ethics, um, the person's choice would still be respected as valid if if we got a sense that it was honestly and authentically uh, sensed with soul, so, so what I'm trying to get at here is explore this: Is it possible that sensing with soul could become uh, a more widely established practice and basis, even for ethics? I mean, that might be a total pipe dream, but I'm just still exploring the theoretical possibility, at least. Or the theoretical side of the possibility. Um, Part of the problem with ethics, as I said, is that um, when we don't... Ethics, as we think about now, is that when we don't have um, a notion of dimensionality when we don't have a sense of dimensionality, or when, when any idea or notion of dimensionality has been refused, has been shut out, disallowed, uh, as is quite common and quite popular uh, these days, um, then actually it's very, it's very, there can be no shared ethics then. There's nothing uh, then to prevent someone's ethics from being purely contingent, learned, arbitrary. And nothing 
to someone said, this is my right, that's your right, this is, um, this is how I think about ethics, that's how you think about ethics. But it could be held, as I said, for purely contingent um, or arbitrary reasons, or held um, principally, in other words, for what are actually not ethical reasons at all. It's something amoral. Not immoral, but uh, as in wrong, but amoral. It just has nothing to do with morality. So without dimensionality, it's hard to justify, um, and it's hard to even know where a person's so-called ethics are coming from. And so ethics is exactly prey to postmodern nihilistic relativism because of this absence of dimensionality. Again, if we pick up a few strands from what we talked about here and in the, in the um, Zealand and Soul talks, and put them together, if we combine Hartman's notion of that firmament of values, which has an objective existence, but has a kind of range and width that usually, or almost always, exceeds uh, the kind of focus of any age, of any culture, or any individual, um, and that also contains within it numerous antinomies. If we combine that idea of the firmament of the values with a really a demand for a sense of dimensionality, I'm going to come back to this dimensionality uh, question in, in more detail later, but if we combine this idea of firmament of values, with the, we, we need um, to avoid this kind of postmodern nihilistic relativism with regard to ethics. We need some kind of Ethics needs to be rooted in something. So I'm saying, talking about wishes or needs, let's say a demand for some kind of sense of dimensionality. What will give us that? Well, the soul-making, sensing with soul, gives us a sense of dimensionality implicitly. It's one of the elements. So we can get a sense of dimensionality for this or that, or of this or that virtue or ethic, or, or even just this or that action, that we're thinking about, um, from the soul-making Dharma practice, and with all that that implies about the ideational imaginal. So those, those two things, the firmament of values, um, which does have a kind of objective uh, existence, a sense of dimensionality, a sense actual practical, practiced sense of dimensionality, and we add the notion that we can trust the, the disciplined or trained soul to sense the ethical and to be touched by it, to want to move towards it, to have an erotic relationship with it, and to want to manifest some or other of those inherently existing values. In other words, the duty as well is part of it. So if we combine all that, this kind of trust in, uh, in um, the soul-making Dharma practice, a demand for a sense of dimensionality, which we can get also through um, the soul-making Dharma practice. And there's still this notion of an objective, uh, but you know, huge, ra- hugely ranged ferment of values. If we combine all, that, then, combine all that, then there is an objectively or independently existing ethics, to a certain extent, which, which we can discern epistemologically through the practice by our careful... Um, sensibility and sensitivity, something which can be trained, and maybe in different ways, maybe there's other ways apart from soul-making dharma practice. But 
certainly including by training in soul-making and a recognition of and a familiarity with the elements of the imaginal. These are the things. This familiarity and recognition of the elements of the imaginal tell me when I'm on the right track, when the whole thing has become soulful. It's got that sense of dimensionality, but also then I can trust this. I mean, still, there will be antinomies and differences of opinion and inclination and feeling between different people, of course. But antinomies exist anyway for individuals within themselves. Antinomies are unavoidable in ethical life, so stressed in the Sina and Soul talks. They're unavoidable. But if we ourselves and society are aware of both the independent existence of this value firmament, its wide range, the inevitability of antinomies both within and between individuals, then a more, at least a more understanding and harmonious existence in society might be possible. Do you understand? If, if we and most or a lot of other people in society are aware there is this independent, independently existing value firm. It's got a huge range. There will be inevitably be antinomies both within myself and within individuals. Then at least we can have more understanding and a kind of more harmonious uh, coexistence in society. Uh, I mean, of course, it might also be, I think it probably would be the case that if soul-making training and sensibilities were almost universally trained, let's just dream that for a minute, um, in members of society, that certain seeming antinomies uh, would be universally understood to be not really antinomies, but oppositions between, uh, let's say, moral or soulful values and amoral uh, values that are kind of ego values or greed values. Not really antinomies at all. I mean, for example, I don't know, like the expansion of Heathrow Airport. So again, the relationship with emotions. Notice one can have strong opinions and feelings regarding a value without a sense of soul-making and soulfulness there. There's no dimensionality, and therefore in this, in that way of uh, approaching things, in the soul-making way of approaching ethics, then it wouldn't be it wouldn't be trustworthy. Just just because there's an intense feeling, just because there's a strong opinion, without that sense of dimensionality and without the other, um, also the beauty and and the, the the other elements of the imaginal, it's not trustworthy. It's not fully trustworthy in that way of thinking about it. This is hard, I mean, as a, as a dream, if, we, if we're dreaming this or proposing this. Because to, to kind of proffer that as desirable, to say it would be great if everyone approached ethics or at least a lot of people approached ethics um, through sensing with soul from the soul-making dharma practice. Um, that would be, you know, uh, actually to insist on, or at least to say is desirable, basically a new epistemology. 
you're basically insisting on a new epistemology or saying it's better to have a new epistemology, at least for the domain of ethics. And for any new epistemology to take root and spread and even come to be a norm one day in the wider society is quite an ask and, and a pretty rare thing. I don't know, perhaps the last sort of major shift of epistemology was the shift of the scientific materialist worldview and its, um, its epistemology hundreds of years ago. So an epistemology is already dominant in a culture. We inherit it, and it's hard to question it. Still, though, trying to place a new ontology first, in other words, before the epistemology, in other words, just saying, this is ethical, this is the truth. Before an epistemology, before a way of uh, teaching people how they might recognize something as more valuable. In other words, just presenting ontology, this is more valuable than that, um, is, uh, is probably be harder than opening the epistemology uh, in the area of ethics. Actually, how might one sense for oneself that this is more valuable than that? So, in this hope, wish, fantasy, dream, uh, ridiculous impossibility pipe dream. Um, it's a big ask. Shifting ontology is huge. Shifting on ontology just uh, sort of out of the blue and kind of cold uh, is probably very hard before we've shifted an epistemology or offered, offered the possibility of epistemology. And by epistemology I mean the practice by which one can come to experience things and sense things for oneself palpably to measure between different values or different ethical choices. So, um, the other day, I can't remember which talk it was on, probably the one on ontology, we talked about the, the possibility of opening up our and moving forward our sense of ontology and epistemology um, by allowing and giving place and import, significant place to eros. In other words, almost partly basing ontology and epistemology on eros. Of course, that's a that's a really uh, an idea that a lot of people would, um, you know, very quickly object to and be horrified by. I read uh, not too long ago a paper by a, I don't know if he's a philosopher or a history of, historian of philosophy or something, anyway, a guy called Wayne Hankey, who um, I must say I'm not a huge fan of. And it was a paper uh, really quite polemically uh, critiquing John Milbank, the theologian philosopher I mentioned the other day, Excuse me. Who's associated with what they call the radical orthodoxy movement these days? And um, I want to read a little bit of what Wayne Hankey says and what he criticizes in John Milbank's approach, uh, 
And as, as I mentioned the other day, John Milbank's approach seems to have a lot of affinity and overlap and commonality with what we've been working out with the soul-making dial, but he's done it in uh, an Orthodox Christian context um, and through very, very different channels of n- Neoplatonism and etc., uh, through Western philosophy and theology. Uh, so he's done it through very different channels than we have. Um, but to me it's quite exciting, and a um, little bit I've read so far, and, and, and uh, what I've seen on YouTube and things, but quite keen. Um, anyway, I read this Wayne Hankey paper, and um, I'm going to read a little bit what his, his critiques. Uh, so he says, um, in, in trying to sum up um, what he's attacking here in John Milbank's approach is, uh, he says, theory belongs to composition and is not separable from it. I have to translate a bit. He means really that um, <clears throat> theory is something that we just, we can create. So again, we have this poiesis um, co- common with our with our notions and this possibility of creating conceptual frameworks, etc. So it's definitely not exactly the same. There's probably quite a lot of differences between what John Milbank's saying, what we're opening up. Um, and he's, I think, still very much sees his his uh, project as very much in process. But anyway, theory belongs to composition. In other words, it's a creative artistic endeavor and is not separable from it. The requirement that we join in the cosmic and divine poiesis, creativity, artistic creativity, governed not by truth but by desire means that there can be no theoretical distance or objectivity. Theory theory occurs as a necessarily incomplete moment within praxis. So translate that basically in our terms it's saying this is terrible. If you if you follow your desire, eros, and not something called truth, and you create theory or create conceptual frameworks out guided by your eros and desire, then there can be no um, theoretical object objectivity and it's just something that occurs as a stage as an incomplete um, movement direction thrust and uh, temporary stage within within practice so in a way that sounds very similar to uh, the kind of logos of logoi in 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 uh, soul making dharma but then he doesn't like this at all, Wayne Hank, he doesn't like this at all. He continues, um, What belongs to theory is self-consciously constructed within poesis, practice, and desire in order to stand against modern theoretical truthfulness. So there's this, again, in our language, this kind of uh, standoff uh, or, uh, of this kind of notion of um, the emptiness of ultimate truth and any any singly finally true conceptual framework of things and then our participation um, in the creation and discovery of theory and conceptual framework and logoi etc um, using our uh, using all the aspects of our soul and our eros and that stands against and kind of in opposition to um, sort of uh, what he's called modern theoretical truthfulness in terms of classical thinking about there is an objective truth. And he continues, when we know that, quote, we know what we want to know, um, 
will when will to know in accord to, in accord with desire and cannot submit that desire to knowledge or knowledge to truth the nihilist gap has already opened so again I'll try to when we in when we know that we you know when we uh, understand that knowledge is something that and even truth is something that's guided by desire whether we admit it or not whether we're conscious of it or not, that Eros comes in to our decisions about what is true, what conceptual frameworks we pick up. When we know that, and when we, um, rather than see that as a problem, when we uh, take it on board and go with it in the deepest and fullest and richest and most soulful way that we can, and when we will to know in accord with our desire, as he said, and cannot submit that desire to knowledge or knowledge to truth. In other words, we leave totally aside any uh, requirements that it uh, that our the desire guiding our knowledge be limited um, by something called truth, etc., or or objective knowledge. Then the nihilist gap has already opened. The gap of uh, you can think anything, believe anything, ethically, uh, philosophically religiously, etc. Um, so, just to say, I wouldn't agree with that, um, cannot submit that desire to knowledge or knowledge to truth. There are, as I said in the talks on the Four Parables series, and uh, just touched on it briefly the other day, there are limits to the eros. It's not just that uh, there are other constraints in our movement towards truth. And one of them is just this um, predict, you know, power of predictability that we talked about in scientific provisional truths, for example. That's a kind of tells me that I know something. It predicts, like Newton's laws predicts, we gave that example, but also um, dependent fading um, is uh, telling me that I, uh, you know, is a prediction that tells me there's something valid here of provisional truth. But he said, if that's the case, um, if, if we know what we want to know, and we will to know in accord with desire, in other words, we let the eros lead, then the nihilist gap has already opened. But I, I would say, not, not, the nihilist gap has not opened if the desire is disciplined, if it's disciplined desire, by which I mean um, that it's uh, rooted in and... Uh, um, shaped by uh, a really sophisticated um, and deep and careful practice like uh, soul-making practice. And then the eros there is is disciplined. It's not just desire willy-nilly, random desire. That would open the nihilist gap. This is something else. It's actually disciplined, and so that gap doesn't open. In, in, in the way that Wayne Hankey thinks. So, um, what does open is a truth that's neither objective nor subjective. Because this kind of trying to cling to a purely objective uh, truth, or notions that truth is something purely objective, completely independently objective, it's very hard to... Uh, it's very hard to kind of uh, sustain that anymore, as I explained the other day. 
But with the, um, with the inclusion, incorporation of Eros as a guide for our uh, conceptual frameworks, for our logoi, for our ideas, for our notions, for our provisional truths. The discipline of Eros when it's in practice in, in a soul-making way, in sensing the soul, then we arrive at something that's neither objective nor subjective. We arrive at truths, logoi, conceptual frameworks that are true but neither objective nor subjective, which must be part of a new definition of truth. Because the old one of something purely objective is very hard, as I said, to hang on to. And then it's not a nihilistic free-for-all. And in the area of ethics, similarly, it's not a nihilistic free-for-all. So... And we talked the other day when we were talking about uh, an ontology or ontology or epistemology based partly on Eros and how Eros might be redeemed along with other uh, aspects of our being and affects. Um, it might be redeemed and given place in, um, in, in a sort of more sophisticated and more powerful uh, and more far-reaching ontology. So we talked about um, uh, truth being not something one finally ever arrives at, but more of a journey. We talked about this um, notion of truth that Descartes had, that the truth, uh, true or real things, are just what's clear and discreet and easily comprehended by the mind. And how if we don't buy into that definition then um, we actually, and, and, and if we also see that truth may be more a, a journey, and there are provisional truths in science as there are in Dharma, and there's a whole journey there. Eros doesn't uh, leave us with clear, discrete uh, things easily comprehended by the mind, but opens up their dimensions and their shading into divinity and um, their unfathomability and their complexity and multi-aspected nature. All this taken together, again, um, uh, suggests that um, Eros may be, in, in John Milbank's word, ontologically disclosive, may have a status that is ontologically disclosive. In other words, it tells us about the truth. It tells us about reality. It leads us and it opens, disclosed, to open, to open up for us um, what's, what's, what might be truth, but truth in inverted commas, because truth is understood um, differently than in, in the sort of, um, well, let's say definitely in, 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 in you know, classical modernist terms. So Eros, um, redeemed and uh, given ontological and epistemological value regarding objects, but also regarding conceptual frameworks. So this, to me, is a really exciting and important possibility, way of opening up our thinking and 
validating it, perhaps more positively. Validating Eros, validating our soul-making experience, validating what's possible there. Last thing, I think, for today. Um, it's interesting, just sticking with this idea about, so we're talking about the possibility of soul-making practice as um, as basis or an approach to ethics. And that can happen in different ways. And what might it be just to dream into the possibility of that being more widely spread in society? And part of that, what would be needed there is a recognition of, excuse me, yeah, that, that more... Uh, a recognition of uh, the necessity to give some ontological and epistemological value or value regarding ontology and epistemology to Eros. And the notion of participation and the notion of truth that is not uh, a final, ultimate, objective, independently existent truth, but um, uh, a, a journey a continuous opening up of provisional truths and participatory. Mm. Last thing to say was is interesting in this connection. In um, years ago, I told this story uh, in some other in some other place or for some other reason. But years ago, um, my colleague Stephen Batchelor. Um, uh, he was um, scheduled to teach a retreat on ethics. Ethics was the subject, um, and no one signed up for it. It got zero zero interest. Um, and of course, that wouldn't happen this, these days because he's just very famous, so people would go just for his name. But I thought that was very telling. You know, the fact that no one signed up for that retreat um, because clearly no one was interested in ethics. And in a way, ethics can seem like a very boring subject. Um, and again, if you go back to what John Milbank, where I read that quote from John Milbank the other day, um, boredom, if you remember, was one of the, um, was in his list. Where is it? In his list of uh, what he, what was kind of disallowed um, as having any ontological disclosive status. So eros, anxiety, boredom, trust, poetic response, faith, hope, charity, and so forth are disallowed ontologically disclosive status, he said. Well, one way of understanding, uh, you know, a lack of interest is also something is boring. People don't sign up because it's not interested because it seems boring. Boredom is also, um, uh, you know, can be understood as a lack of eros. When there's boredom, there's lack of eros. When there's eros, there's no boredom. But if we if we now just expand a little bit on this idea of the ontological and epistemological value of eros, potentially, then it might be that, um, again, what's happening is boredom, as an absence of eros, is telling me um, uh, at its best, I mean, boredom at its best. I'm bored with this. It's not because I'm not, uh, I'm not open 
to being uh, erotically engaged. I'm not open to being uh, mentally and soulfully engaged. But boredom at its best, it might be telling me there's not enough here in these ideas or this presentation or this picture of how things are. There's not enough truth value or truth possibility here, let's say, if truth is a journey. There's not enough truth possibility. So that the usual way we think about ethics, again, uh, why people didn't sign up is possibly because how they thought about ethics was it's just not interesting. It's actually boring. Because the way it's presented flatly as a question of right and wrong and ought to do, without this other dimension, or these other whole other dimensions, this whole other depth of richness and soulfulness around the question of how, uh, what is it good to be? What is the worthwhile life? What is the beautiful life? might be that people were sensing in that there's not enough truth value. When it's limited, when, when the ethics as a subject is is kind of uh, trammeled and amputated and, and um, disdimensionalized in that way. There's not enough truth possibility here. And that's actually where the boredom sense is coming from. There's also, because there's not enough erotic possibility, they're linked together. And that's where the, the boredom is coming from. There's neither enough juice nor enough truth possibility in the way we usually conceive of ethics. Okay, let's stop there.